0: Welcome to the DGR Podcast. I'm your host, David Gray. Hey guys, today's guest is Joel Smith from Just Fly Sports. Joel is based in Cincinnati, Ohio. He is a man who wears many, many hats and I'm always impressed at how he can seemingly easily interchange between these hats. He is a strength and conditioning coach, he's a track and field coach, he is an author of several books, he has a new course online called Elastic Essentials, he is the host of the Just Fly Performance podcast, it's a podcast that I've had the pleasure of being on I think three times as a guest now, so we've had some good chats on the over the years on over there on that podcast and off the podcast as well. Um, so I like talking with Joel because he is a coach who thinks deeply about things he is not afraid to experiment, he doesn't just do things because other people do them, he would play around with things and see what works and see what doesn't, Um, and he obviously has experience as well, so he's worked for a number of years with a number of different athletes across a lot of different sports, so all the way from youth athletes all the way up to Olympic level athletes, so it's always good to get Joel's ideas on things. Um, We chatted about training obviously structured versus unstructured training with regards to his own training and then programming for athletes jump training balance training is it valuable is it not um in the rehab versus performance worlds uh categorizing athletes how he does uh, muscle versus tendon driven athletes wide versus narrow infrasternal athletes what all of those things mean for programming and strength training and regular training and everything else in between um but most of all we chatted about podcasting so I wanted to know what makes a good podcast. What, what, how do I become a good interviewer? You will hear that I'm probably not such a good interviewer in this interview, but I think I'm getting a little bit better. Um, what, what makes a good podcast in terms of what do people want to hear? How do I know if it's good? Um, what will people enjoy? How do I get good guests on? So obviously, it's easy for me to get Joel on because he kind of owes me one, but what happens when my network is, I've kind of exhausted it and I need to get good guests on that I don't actually know. How do I get them on? How do I approach them? All of those things, everything in regards to making a good podcast. So um, I hope you like it. Please give it a like, give it a share, give it a subscribe, um, help us out with that stuff. And um, here is Joel Smith from Just Fly Sports.
1: I'm a bit nervous. Yeah, it's interesting. I could tell you usually are used to being on the other side. So I get yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just, make, just make some jokes and you know, it's fine. Yeah. I, I, I'm, it's usually I get to, um, I don't know. Usually it's like, it's actually easy. Cause it's like, it's literally just asking questions and it's, I mean, you know, I like to talk, so hopefully yeah. I don't say something stupid.
0: Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you about like, I was going to ask you actually some questions about your, your podcast. Oh yeah. um because obviously this is episode one and you're on. I read on your website it's on episode 277. Yeah. And we've had 196 <laughs> unique guests. So we might even just start the podcast there. Um so so yeah, I was gonna ask you a little bit about the podcast and then we'll talk a little bit about your obviously your training and, and your new course and stuff like that as we go along.
1: Oh, so um, awesome.
0: if you're happy, the podcast stuff is going to be a selfish one for me so I can learn from the master as we go along.
1: I wouldn't say I'm the master. I just, I just be curious. That's it. Yeah. That's literally yeah. it.
0: Yeah. So for anyone who um, is, is listening, if there is anyone listening, so we have Joel Smith on today. We don't have a name for the podcast yet, but we have Joel, Joel Smith from Just Fly Sports. Uh, he doesn't need much of a introduction, but um, the reason I wanted to bring Joel on for my first podcast was because My first podcast that I appeared on was your podcast, Joel, um, which really threw me into the deep end. So people can hear my voice today, which is like the little bit of quiver in my voice in the beginning. I actually rarely get nervous, but I am a little bit nervous today. And I was definitely nervous doing that podcast that first time with you um, because you obviously have a lot of big names and stuff on. And then it was just me talking crap about feet and knees and stuff like that. So um, you're very welcome.
1: Thank you very much for joining me. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, David. It's, it's, I've never been guest number one. So this is, (laughs) I I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah. We were hoping to, so I'm committing to doing 20 episodes at least, and then seeing like, if I'm any good at it, if I enjoy it, if anyone is listening and then take it from there. So to get to 277 is, is pretty cool.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's just, it is interesting. I I occasionally hear people say like, all right, well, I'll get to this number and then we'll see it. They always keep going. (laughs) So yeah. I'm sure someday you'll be up to 277 or more. So yeah, man, it's,
0: it's what, like- um, what's your biggest, like if you had, if you had one big piece of advice for me to get, to get to there now, it's obviously like in anything, it's not just about numb, like getting to a certain number or whatever, it's about quality. Like, so is there, is there a big thing that you would say, don't make the mistake I did or here's, here's how you keep going or whatever.
1: That's a good question. It's interesting to think about. I guess maybe the only mistake is that I live by the seat of my pants a lot. And and the sense of like, (laughs) for a long time, it was literally, I I mean, the show was supposed to go out Thursday and I'm interviewing a guest on Tuesday or something. And I think the biggest thing is just, this is for me personally, is just stay a few weeks ahead. And that, uh, because ultimately I look at, well, what makes a successful podcast? In my opinion, it's just a pure curiosity is one. Um, transparency and authenticity. And being ahead of time, like just being a little bit ahead allows you to do that more. Mm-hmm. It, it, it You don't want to get caught in a situation, in my opinion, where it's like, well, I got to put a show out. And you know, I, just to be able to stay true to yourself optimally, I think that just staying a little bit ahead has helped me. I'm still not as far as I'd like, to be honest. I've gone from probably two days ahead to maybe on average one to two weeks ahead. So I call that for me, that is growth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, a, that's, able- a, that's
0: a big win because I'm like you in that regard. I'm like last minute for everything. I'm just a procrastinator with everything. So <laughs> especially when I'm re- even courses and stuff, I know you have a new course, but like when I, the only way I can actually get work done is by setting a deadline and saying, right, it's going to be out on this date. And then I start to work. I can't. Which puts me under pressure, but that pressure is what makes me work rather than if I don't have that pressure, I'll just keep ignoring it.
1: Yeah, that that pressure is a key to life though. It's <laughs> I, I and even for yeah, the course I just released. I mean, that deadline got pushed back so many times. I'm it's kind of like a, a deadly combination because I am a um I'm a bit of a perfectionist with certain things. Some things not at all. Like doing the dishes, my wife gets mad at me all the time for missing spots. But when it comes to like something that's like a book, a course. I'm just like, I have this obsessiveness about it that probably borders on the unhealthy, but I think I've been able to put together some decent things. Uh, yeah. But that, yeah, so it's like, but then you're a little bit of a procrastinator and that, and, and yeah, just setting realistic expectations has been a really big journey on my own end. end. But here we are. You know, the, you know, the phrase, like how you
0: do one thing is how you do everything. I don't think that's true at all. Yeah.
1: I think it's some I, things it is. Um,
0: some things it is but you things. see a lot of successful people in one part of their life who are just a complete mess in another part athletes in particular
1: yeah I, my first main boss uh, when I was coaching track at a place called Wilmington College it was just a little NCAA division three school and this is when I was very admittedly unprepared for life I'd gone through the education system had six years of college and this you could probably detect some of my viewpoints in me saying this but i jump into my first job and it's a lot of organization and recruiting and all these things that take um my strengths are very much curiosity i'm a little adhd a little bit and and very like you know seat of the pants ideas and then this job requires very like fixed you know Recru- you know, organize a recruiting notebook, be proactive in calling, be a year ahead of sending letters out and all this stuff. And I'm like, this is the opposite of me. And then I remember I remember very distinctly my boss telling me one day, he looked at my workouts on the board uh, and he's like, wow, this is like the only thing you're organized in. Like this is, you're like, if you were like this in everything, that'd be awesome. So I, I definitely, and I don't know why I remember that. It's just kind of funny. Maybe it was just something that was very important for me at that time in my life. Um, but I've tried to take that mentality and like, like organizing my workspace very thoroughly and just little, it's like little one every year. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm getting. I there. bet
0: you it's it sounds like then you've you've almost flipped in some ways where your work stuff has become more structured and now your training has become less structured. But from <laughs> listening to you over the last couple of years,
1: that's hilarious. That's actually hundred percent true. It's it's I just literally did a podcast that'll go out in a couple of weeks uh, with Austin Yocum talking about that line between order and chaos mm-hmm. and how I, I mean on the my fascination is is and you're you're so right as i used to be much more structured and i still am in many ways if i'm writing programs for online clients and things like that but even in that context i'll oftentimes have two warm ups you pick or i'll have i try i'm trying to build in more and more options to allow their own intuition to be a part of that process and that's really important yeah. Uh, much more than I would have thought ten years ago. I used to just think, well, what's the best program you can write to hit the biggest part of the bell curve and you know and then you can make a book about it and whatever. And it's not that way. it's it's so it's like this it is this spectrum of order and chaos that allows you to, yes, have a structure that is the the masculine, the young, the there must be a frame to the house. but then once you have that frame, allowing the flow to happen is the magic that I think we don't like. The field is very good at structure. There's all sorts of certifications and organizations and mm-hmm. saying how to do this, but there's a lot less talk about how do we allow that athlete's intuition to come out and really connect with the session.
0: Yeah. And that's how they learn too, right? Is like actually having to think and, and say, what, like, does that exercise feel better for me or does that one feel better for me? And like... Oh, I, I struggle with that, definitely, because I fall more on the on movement side of things. I definitely fall more on the, the chaos side with, when I'm when I'm working with people. Now, I'm I'm quite structured in some ways, but when they get to a certain point, I need to start to influence and bring in more of the chaos side of things. And it's more it's not even chaos. It's just making them aware of their own body and, get, and making them make their own choices and things like that. I think that's how people are. Earn. and um that's a it's, it's very tough in the rehab side of things and i think because the risk is there right the risk is it's more there's more risk involved with that than being like here's the exact thing that you should be doing but
1: they don't learn that way at all yeah that's interesting to think about yeah rehab being more it, it i think a lot too about I don't know, maybe we can talk about this, but I, I was just thinking the other day of how important it is for athletes to occasionally, I mean, hopefully they don't, right? But when they do get hurt, that draws in such a different part of the, the psyche and the approach to the movement versus your typical training. You kind of take for granted you're healthy. But so oftentimes athletes will have an injury, they're overtraining, they're doing whatever, they get hurt, and then they actually rebound off that into like a personal best. And mm-hmm. I I was thinking about how do we take these pieces of rehab uh, that are so valuable there where we have to go internal and we have to go back to the basics and then we can take it out into, you know, that more chaotic and open environment. And then I also was thinking about, and I'd be curious, <laughs> we can talk about this too, but like the idea that uh, I've been really into, um, like the, uh, Edith Weiss, like Mark Marinovich, ProBidex, like the, the discs and the water bags. And, mm-hmm. um, not so much from like the, um, all the fancy exercises you, you can do with the water bag, but more just the idea of it's a little more chaotic. You know what I'm yeah. saying? And even that in the rehab. yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: And with that, like, so the perturbation that you get from a balance training or something like that, I've seen you, I wanted to ask you about that later on with some of the discs that you balance on and stuff like that. The order and chaos thing is interesting because I think the more chaotic the environment, the more simple the body actually has to become. And Franz Bosch talks about that, where that's why the co-contractions are are there in our bodies to try and make things very simple. For instance, if you are walking on if you're walking on ice, if you see, see someone walking on ice, like their body has to, they won't, they'll, they'll walk with like flexed knees and and they'll take more, shorter steps and all of these things because the the environment has become more chaotic, so the body has to become much more simple. And that's an interesting thing to think about. Mm. That's why sometimes I think, you know, people, some people talk about functional exercises when they're doing balance stuff and stuff like that. It's more functional. And they think that maybe sometimes I'm promoting movement. Maybe sometimes you're actually promoting move are not promoting movement in that regard because you're actually forcing the body to stabilize much more and become much more simple body so it is an, an interesting thing to think about that like and then sometimes you can have a more more movement which might mean more chaos by putting your hands on something to balance as you do a split squat a half field split squat or something like that you get the balance in your body so then your, your body can move through more range of motion which you might might call more chaos. I don't know. So that's just a bit of a I'm gonna try and avoid them soliloquies as, as I go along. That's not that's not what I intended to do, but it's just an interesting concept.
1: Hey, you're you're totally right. I was um there's one exercise that, it's out of the probot x book uh, where you have um and again it's funny because sometimes I'm like you you have that archetype of like the circus you know in the gym like where you're doing too many things and maybe that's the way how you just described it as a way to say, this isn't a circus. Cause in the sense of you, there's some people on Instagram, they're doing exercises and there's a million things going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do think a, a level of complexity, and I talk about this in the uh, the course is making the body work at high velocity to coordinate is really important. But when there's too many degrees of freedom, and it's like, well, what's really happening? And there was an exercise in the ProBetX X I was doing where the front foot is on a disc with a... Uh, like a little hard point uh, knob on the bottom. So your foot has all these degrees of freedom in the circular plane. The back leg is on a physio ball and you're doing a split squat there. Mm -hmm. And that's a very, I don't know, like a lot of people say, well, that's just a circus kind of thing. Like, But as you were saying, as I've been doing that, there's kind of only one way to do that and not fall off. If, Mm If that makes sense, like there's only one plane for the most part, there's probably a few different, but there's one plane the body likes to stay in, a track the body likes to stay in to actually do that split squat and not fall. And so I actually, I in you saying that, that's the first time I've thought about it and in that perspective. I've always liked the idea that having the discs or the balance, it does let the body pick more so than being locked in, like a, right. a squat with the feet flat and fixed. But in the body will pick and kind of stick with that efficient that efficient track. Uh, yeah. That's a really cool way of thinking about it. Yeah,
0: yeah. It has to be really simple at that stage. You can't mess around. So it forces it forces those co contractions to happen. It has no choice. Which it could be that could be a really valuable thing for someone. And like I've I've definitely to and froed on that stuff over the years. Like, is it is it worthwhile? Is it not worthwhile? But it's hard to intellectualize it. But I think athletes just feel good when they use our people just feel good and I can't explain why they feel good all of the time but they feel good when they use some of that stuff and some we can't quantify like oh would I have prevented injuries here if I use more of that stuff it's hard to it's impossible to say but like just just giving people a challenge and I think I heard John Kiley who you've interviewed I think in the past say when you when you can give an athlete a task where they're they're concentrating on something, but they don't, they couldn't tell you what they're concentrating on. So they, they couldn't say I'm focusing on my foot or my knee or my hip here. It's I, I'm focused, I can't have a conversation with you very easily while I'm doing the task, but I am I am concentrating on something. And I think that's a nice line to to push someone towards. And I think that's a body that has to learn quickly then. And that's someone that just has to, has to pay attention because you can do a squat without paying any attention mm-hmm. to what your body is doing.
1: Yeah. Same thing with so many rehab, like TheraBand stuff. And I mean, you could just totally go through the motions. It would be mm-hmm. interesting if you wanted to quantify, like if you could quantify brain activity with different, like do a balance disc now do just a clamshell. What, <laughs> what's the difference in the engagement and how the brain is learning?
0: yeah exactly man exactly and just i was actually going to ask you about this later on but i suppose we may as well while we're talking about kind of structured versus unstructured with regards to we we so we teamed up with a a young athlete um a couple of years ago for for a few months at least i was working with him i don't know how long you were working with him but um i won't say his name but one of the cool things that i saw when when you were programming him at the time his training was unbelievably structured. So he was with a he was in an academy, uh soccer football academy, um, a very good academy. And he was super structured with his own training and with their training. And you changed some of his plyometric work so for instance on his structure like it was like okay I'm in I'm in with the club from this time to this time I come home I have dinner at this time then I stretch for half an hour at this time then I do this amount of plyometrics then I do my ball handling work and all of this stuff and I think you changed a lot of his training to like right here's some basic strength exercises and the cool thing I thought the very cool thing I thought you had him doing was dunking a tennis ball And it wasn't, it wasn't quantified as much. Like you have to dunk it X amount of times, or it was almost like here's, I can't remember exactly, but like 20 or 30 minutes of just playing around, dunking a tennis ball in different ways, left foot, right foot jumps, all different things. And, um, I just thought that was like such a cool way, especially for a young athlete to get his reps in, in a real non-structured way.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. When. Um, him and I first started working together. Yeah. And I remember you being involved as well. I remember looking at the the program and it was, yeah, it was just that it was, it was so hyper-structured and even seeing what some of the strength coaches were utilizing at the time he was doing like box jumps with weighted vests. And I'm just like, this kid needs to play. I mean, play changes everything. Um, I've had a number of guests on my podcast. One of the most recent was Daniel Bach, a uh, strength coach out of Austin, Texas. And He was saying when he was just trying to jump higher and this guy's a soccer player like you know vertical jump and dunking is not his primary objective although at younger ages i think it's important to be able to utilize multiple skills and things like that even an older even a professional soccer player just for fun in the off season or occasionally it would be really cool but daniel had talked about basically the thing that helped him improve his jump was and i'm sure there was tons of global adaptations too was just getting stronger and doing fun dunks on a low rim, all sorts of, you're playing. It's not just like the rim's 10 feet and you're just trying to just trying to do this thing. And so, yeah, like we had multiple uh, jumps in there. A lot of times I would write um, like a basketball quote unquote workout, but it would just say, all right, for five, 10 minutes practice, like a reverse layup for five, 10 minutes practice this kind of thing, or just, just have fun. Eventually just became just have fun for this amount of time. Mm-hmm. And that was so powerful for him and, I mean, it is it's crazy how quickly like soccer, especially higher level soccer athletes are really driven to a level of specialization really fast. Mm -hmm. Um, but just to keep play and to keep other sports in is so important for any athlete.
0: Yeah. And do you think like he benefits from that? One, just from it not being structured, and two, it's like like the system has a task here. Like the fun part of it is obviously a big part, but the system has a task which it has to focus on. It's not just like you jump as high as you can for X amount of reps. It's actually like there's an end goal and the end goal is put the tennis ball, dunk the tennis ball here, and now your body has to organize around that. Is that is that your your thought process there? Like, So does the task doesn't necessarily matter. It's just that there is a task and end goal and you have to think about that rather than just measuring yourself all the time on how high I can actually jump
1: yeah absolutely just just having a task and watching the body figure it out i so oftentimes uh, i was at uh Rafe kelly who's been on my podcast a couple of times he had a human movement retreat called return to the source and we were talking about coaching one day and queuing and there's research that shows that it was something as to the tune of uh feedback was given every every rep out of 10 like for whatever they were doing like maybe sprinting or uh, mm-hmm. whatever it was. And then there was another one where feedback was every other, so every other attempt. And then there was one where like only one out of every 10 things was you gave feedback. So you do it 10 times and then the coach said something one time. And the most effective thing was where the coach said something only one time out of 10. It just shows how powerful learning machines we are. We do too much as coaches so often. And so just to be able to give an athlete something to do and try and learn you see the body figuring it out. And that's the beautiful thing where it's like, look, I'm not telling you anything. Like I'm just watching. And so, but then the thing is, well, when do we coach more? It's when we see the same mistake being repeated over and over and over again. And then we try to go in. But uh, one of the things I like about dunking is it has, there's certain things that just have cultural significance. You, I don't know if you call movement archetypes, but things that like a kid growing up, is like, I wanna do this. And, I want to dunk is I, there's something that's just more than just a skill like if i said hey go jump on that rock okay cool like i'll go jump on that rock mm-hmm. uh, but there's something that's more electric to like yeah i dunked it there it just, it's just as a feeling that flows through your body it energizes you you could say it releases more dopamine or whatever i don't know it's just it's fun and there's something that's really meaningful in there so i i i like the idea of dunking things i don't know how that would go in an ancestral you know, play or whatever. It's probably more of a modern thing to have a rim and a hoop, and you know, whatever. But mm-hmm. I just I think that that's no matter what sport you play, I think the be able, the ability for to dunk something is is yeah. powerful.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things in Ireland is obviously we don't have much basketball, and we have we have Irish sports like Gaelic football and hurling, but they're played on a they're played on a big pitch, a big field, and it's hard to do much on your own like it's, it's very hard or with two people like yeah you could go up and hit the ball 100 yards to each other and stuff like that but one of the things i'm really jealous of kind of on the the basketball especially i've learned this from just working with people and talking with people from the states over the years is like you can just go out and shoot and jump around and stuff and you can do that for as many years as you want you can do that like you can you can do that until you're 60 70 years of age and I think that's that's so cool that you just need literally a rim and a ball and you can make your own workout and stuff like that. And we really, Irish sports definitely struggle with that. Even with soccer, I think it's good because you can get on a two versus two pitch or something like that. But in our sports, we don't have that. So people, when they retire from competitive sport, that sport is pretty much gone for them. They don't, they don't do it anymore. And you see Irish athletes get old and slow and pretty miserable looking very, very quickly wants to retire because there is, there's no accessibility, accessibility left for them. So that's one of the things with, the, especially with basketball, I think is, is really cool.
1: I think it'd be funny to have some sort of um like score associated with people post sport, like 25 and up, what are you doing? Are you enjoying it? You know, mm-hmm. like, like some sort of, well, Movement well-being beyond age twenty-five scored by countries. Yeah. Um, I, I uh, Frank Frenchits, French, who was uh, he's like a, kind of like an anthropologist, likes to study like the ancestral movement. What's the core of who we are as humans? And when he was on my podcast, actually the last episode, he was talking very favorably about basketball because not only is it like you said, it can be very individual. There's creative, like you can practice moves. But there's also a rhythm. Every time that ball bounces, it's rhythmic. And I yep. think there's something that tunes the body. It's just like there's something about a bouncing ball that's really cool and being able to tune that up with your body as well.
0: Yeah, the noise of that. Yeah, big time. Um with your new course, elastic essentials. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's it. Yeah,
0: I haven't. I haven't dived too deep into it yet, but when, so that's, and I'm looking forward to it, but when you say, when you say elasticity, Joel, or when you talk about elasticity or when you, when you might say that's a, that's an athlete who is an elastic athlete, what does that mean? What do, what, what comes to mind in your, for you when, when you talk
1: about someone in that way? Yeah, that's a good question. So my, um, I'll just prelude that to saying I, that course, uh, when I started strength and conditioning, um, when I was. 2021. I had my first experience as a strength and conditioning intern. And honestly, I, I really had a poor experience. Like I didn't want to be a strength coach after doing that because all it seemed to be was here's some lifts, yell a lot at the athletes, do it this way. And there was really no respect paid as I saw to athleticism. And I don't think I could describe it at the time, but what makes someone athletic? What makes someone reactive? What gives someone just bounce and speed? And so as I progressed through, I eventually did fall back into strength and conditioning. And in my eight years as a full-time strength coach, I started with a very, um, very mechanistic model. Like you're going to go in, you're going to do your typical movement prep. We're going to basically lift dumbbells and barbells the whole time. And I, as I moved through I started really taking the barbells and dumbbells slowly out. They were still in there at the end, but um, they ended up in a much smaller proportion. And I was filling that space with a lot of body weight stuff, primal human skills, games, body weight isometric holds, um, things that were much more, I feel like you play with your body weight. So let's optimize this thing. And so long story short, I would consider the elastic athlete to be a master of uh, storing and returning elastic energy. Mm-hmm. And the, that starts with the foot, uh, the ability, if you're a land athlete, probably not if you're a swimmer as much. Um, but if you're a land athlete, it starts with your ability to interact with the ground to store and release energy. There's the pronation and internal rotation elements. But then also that goes beyond to how do I work with my own body weight? So oftentimes we see athletes and we're like glorify this. Is someone posts themselves lifting, and the first thing you see is their face tense up, and just all these excess contractions happening all over the place, falling into this like glorifying this like concentric oriented rigid approach. So we're like stat, we ignore the feet, and then we ignore the ability of the body weight to work fluidly. And so basically, it's just it's just prioritizing how we store and release elastic energy, prioritizing uh, how we approach body weight, and then when we do utilize. Uh, barbell training means how do we not overcoach those to the point where we're locking athletes out of you know the ability to internally rotate and to actually go through that release pattern of energy so just storing and releasing being a master store and releaser of energy is one way you could put it
0: yeah On the like the neck and jaw stuff when i'm when i first work with a with a whoever let's say they have back pain or like hip tightness or whatever the hell it is I can't ignore the neck and the jaw and like that tensioning up above. I I pretty much have accepted that I'm going to have to clean that up with anyone who's been heavily into the gym for a number of years that like, I just asked them to posterior tilt their pelvis in the smallest way. And they clench their jaw every time. And it's just like, I'm just using the most, most high threshold strategy I can find to do every single movement. And that's a very expensive strategy to be using on your body. And it just, it is, it is, it is good. Like if I can tense every single thing in my body to lift the weight and and stuff like that, but when I don't have an external load on me, apart from gravity, obviously like, do I need that all of the time? And I, I want, I want to be able to go up through the gears. There is like in motor output, there is like, let's say a zero to 10, in that regard but do i want to go from zero to ten all the time or do I want to be able to hit a six or a seven without having to go full on clench every single thing in my body so um that's that's an interesting thing do you think do, do you i've heard you probably say before and I, I i i don't know if you still subscribe to this but like would that be the same thing as then describing someone maybe as like a muscular versus a tendon driven athlete or a fascia driven athlete is that kind of the same
1: thing or is that would you still use those type of words? Yeah, that's a good question how I still use that. Um, so I would say somewhat. Like it's not, it's not the, the core. I've actually moved towards the core of the muscle versus fascial driven to my understanding of a wide and narrow infrasternal angle, actually. I feel like that's like some whatever we would say is muscular or elastic, I really think can go down to that uh, infrasternal angle. Mm-hmm. And then everything else is kind of a flavor of it. Like, for example, uh, I'm a narrow infrasternal angle. I'm elastic. I am, I am that archetype to a T. Uh, however, like what you were saying, uh, with like, I put a lot more muscular flavor on that than I should have. And a real big moment that hit me that I had become so much more muscular in nature versus my old, like maybe 17, 18 year old Joel playing basketball, just getting up and dunking like no warm up, just going up and bouncing off one leg and dunking, like no problem. Um, I was doing a a depth jump and in some uh, photo sequences for my book speed strength and so that was like I don't know I was like 34 at the time and I looked at my face and neck when I was doing that depth jump and I I couldn't tell you 100% that I didn't do this when I was younger but I would say I probably didn't but like all the muscles of my face and neck were just like straighted out in in reversing this depth jump and I'm just like I don't think it's supposed to be like this and and I could see that happening over time. Just think about holding a barbell, think about holding a bar for a back squat, think even a front squat where there's compression, right? Like you're in that, Pat Davidson calls it the zone two where the elbows are straight ahead and you're still compressing the upper body. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's not to say that a level of jaw, like there are certain muscles that definitely need to be on. Mm-hmm. One of the lessons I learned from a Darian Barr was talking about, we had a day, He, I think he called like turtling your neck or something, but even this, this, It's hard to describe, but basically it's like, imagine you're sprinting and everyone listening to this, go out and try it when you run, but like, um, just imagine your whole head subtly, maybe one centimeter, just kind of like compressing down towards your, your collarbones, Mm -hmm. not like chin down, but just everything vertical straight down, just this very subtle compression and you actually, I I felt it really helped you actually to run a little faster because you do need some, if you're sprinting, if you're doing something explosive, there needs to be compression in the system. Yep. But then there's also excess where everything is just turned on. And I'll leave it with saying this is I, uh, one thing I want to get into now that the course is done, I can relax a little bit, is I spent some time learning the Alexander technique, if you've heard of that. Yep. And I, I there's a really good practitioner in my area. And so I'm going to make it a point to visit her every week because our emotions are also coming up in that. You see it, like I was coaching, um, volunteering just one day a week with high school track last year, working with a lot of like high jumpers in particular. And in high jump, you see it, watch people's faces when they go to jump. And you can tell a lot about that person just by seeing the expression their face makes. And so many people look like they're in pain, like, oh, I have to try so hard to do this. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's like a validation thing, you know, and and so there's a lot of layers to that I feel like um the jaws is just it's really interesting actually I really want to do more research yeah. into that as I move forward. Yeah there's a lot to learn up there
0: the uh, the neck and jaw stuff and just that upper body is 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 huge I think. I think freeing 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 up the upper body is like freeing up arm swing starting to see definitely when I look at you moving like you see a lot of arms everywhere arms moving all over the place and like when you see When you see someone who just does not swing their arms when they walk or run or like doesn't get much range of motion there it's hard to look at anything else and you can just presume they don't move very well because like arm swing is rotation it's what one arm is going forward one arm is going back if if that doesn't happen now obviously both could go back both could go forward depending on the task but when you don't see arm swing you see a system that's locked up and um they have to they have to clench instead as instead and as well but the compression thing, like compression, people think compression is a bad word. It's just another thing that our body needs to be able to do. It's just when we're stuck in one or the other, um, that's a big thing. But yeah, the, the tendon versus muscular thing is interesting to me because I, I do struggle with that, thinking of things that way, because is, is, what, what allows us to take advantage of our tendons is someone who is better at overcoming muscle slack at their muscles. So I I think, so if someone, if someone's foot hits the floor and their muscles can contract quicker or get an isometric at the muscle quicker, then the tendon is going to stretch and we're going to have to use that tendon in a different way versus the muscular athlete then is going to have to lengthen the muscle more to overcome slack in the muscle and then use the muscle more to push them off. So is that, is that then like, okay, a coach is, like this is where you see S and C coaches with an unbelievable looking counter movement jump. They can jump through the roof because they have all this time to to bend their knees all the way down and get down into that squat position. So I can use all my strength then to push me back out of it. But if you ask them to run and maybe hit the floor and change direction, then is that's that's not going to happen. Is that is that is that like? Is that a drawback of strength training then for, for some people who go that far down It that? Do you think about it that way that they can't overcome muscle slack and that's why they can't maybe maybe use their tendons as well and they have to use the muscle and, and really like lengthen muscle to, to be able to push off? Does that make sense? Is that something that you would think about?
1: Yeah, I think I know what you're asking there. And so that, yeah, like basically you, outside of the wide and narrow ISA, just another categorization being, well, your standing vert's awesome, but then once you go to a running vert, you can't do it. And I think there's a lot of things that go into something like that. I do mm-hmm. think, and this is another reason I've gone to more of the ISA than even saying you're really tendon-driven. I mean, mm-hmm. and again, some athletes who have like really long Achilles, yeah, you could make the argument they're more tendon-driven. They have a longer, bigger tendon that stores and strut. There's there's a lot of, it's really complex. And the the reason maybe I don't use those terms specifically so much anymore Um, it's funny, like I'm looking up, like I'm trying to search for like this, this, you know, concise answer, but name me an athlete, no matter how sloppy and how bad who doesn't use their tendons, right? Like you, you have to, you have to. So I guess the question then is how it's almost really more, and yes, you can condition tendons. They can get stronger and connective tissue can get stronger and there's fascial integration. And I think that you can definitely leverage that more than others. Um, but I think a lot of it is just how do you use joints and, for example, with the vertical jump type thing, uh, there's there's many factors, but someone who can't take their vertical well into running things, you could say that they have a problem transitioning the foot to like an active class two lever mode where the heel can get off the ground early enough to allow the Achilles to store and release quickly. Um, so that could be like one of it. Another thing is uh, muscle driven, a good standing vert, but bad running could have really bad internal rotation. So if they're going to do a double leg jump, for example, maybe that lead leg has a hard time inward turning to stop their momentum. Mm-hmm. And that could go even all the way up the chain into what you were saying, like maybe they have no rib movement. Athletes, it's funny, because this just hit me like a year ago, and I'm it's probably mostly because of you, honestly, is athletes who have just really struggled to jump off the run, and especially two legs. And it's almost like the two leg running vertical, I feel like is, that's a more functional vertical in some ways than a single leg, because you have to have two legs doing two different jobs. You have to internally rotate the lead block leg, which you also then need up the chain, some upper body, some rib mobility. And I had one client in particular I was working with who just really was terrible at, a, he was a volleyball player and was really terrible at a running two leg jump. And I noticed he just really couldn't internally, internally rotate that front leg. And mm-hmm. then I started to think about it more, it's like this guy's ribs are just as stuck as you could possibly imagine. He has no choice. Like Mm -hmm. we could do all the internal rotation drills in the world, and nothing's gonna change that much. There will be a level of change, but it will not continue until he can learn to unlock and unwind that upper body a little bit more. And so, I think that it's just there's a a total, like I guess you'd call like motility of the whole body that works together to really unlock this reactivity once you get beyond the standing vertical.
0: Yeah, yeah. And looking at like you're, I think you're right there with looking at like the ISA infrasternal angle for anyone who's not listening and uh, or for anyone who, do, who isn't sure of that term. And I think looking at the joints, like makes makes a big difference because I was only saying the other day to someone like you can look at the muscle, but the muscle can trick you and you can't really tell what's going on here. You can't really tell what's going on with the tendon. But if someone just doesn't move the bone, if the bone or the joint isn't able to move, they don't have access to range of motion. Like that's, you can actually tell something from that you can infer something from that rather than making a guess around is the muscle strong enough or weak enough or is all of these other things that is really just a massive guess or is it activating or not activating like i'd rather say does it get into the position does the bone the joint get into the position where it loads the muscle in that way and with that like that in lack of internal rotation that you're saying, obviously, the internal rotation is putting force into the ground, and internal rotation is of, of the front leg is also getting length into the glute max, and that glute max is it's helping it overcome slack so that it can contract then or it can it can move into a concentric position and push. So it's 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 looking at the movement of the joints. Obviously, something Gary Ward talks about a lot. It's such an easier way of deciding can you can coach someone for the rest of your life to try and do something, but if their joint can't get there, they have no chance of doing it. So bones don't lie. I don't think.
1: Yeah. I think there is like a general, are you muscular elastic? Yeah. The ISA, You can look at it there, but then to go into any specific skills, you do need to expand your tool set and say, okay, you can't do this. So what joint isn't moving like it's supposed to, and why isn't it doing that? And how can I help you get there a little bit more? Um, other than that, and I think that I think about that a lot, though, in the sense of this is where again we we really have to respect the self organization of athletes. A lot of athletes are really good compensators, and they found really good ways to work around these deficits. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a um, in the the basketball or vertical jump world, there was a guy Justin Darlington, and I, and I spent a lot of time watching this guy. It's like a six four pogo stick, like get, can touch the top of the backboard, and a two foot jumper. And I really wonder what his like structure is. Like I've kind of spent some time guessing as to how he is because he, when he takes off, he takes off like a jump stop. Like he doesn't plant and then internally rotate as much. He kind of just lands with his feet planted together and just does a kangaroo bounce. And so here's a guy who probably has some sort of maybe limitations and some like internal, some you know maybe the ribs. I don't know, um, but has found still found a way to get it done. And so that's, and in working in the swimming world, you'd see a lot of like spinal restrictions and stiffnesses. And, and I, I've spent some time working with a guy who won the hundred free in the 2012 Olympics and his spine was super rigid, definite, a pure wide ISA type person. And his approach or swim stroke was very asymmetrical, like, da-da, da-da. Mm-hmm. and he's just working with what he has in this as athletic way as he can. And so I also just think it is interesting to watch athletes figure out ways to work around their structure. But the more we learn about this stuff, the more it's like, wow, that's so cool. How you figured out how to, you don't really have good range here and you still figured out how to do this. That's pretty cool. Obviously we still could help athletes the most by helping them to, you know, the critical gaps, filling those in, especially if it's leading them to uh, getting injured and things like that.
0: Mm-hmm. So with them, with them type of athletes, then like if it's, if it's someone like you, for instance, then do you think the strength training side of things aside from like beginner gains for a couple of years and just making sure you're you're strong enough whatever that means do you think then that's as much about just getting rid of that inhibition that the nervous system might be holding stopping you from producing that much force or whatever just protecting your body more so than just like tissue quality, whatever that, I don't really even like that word Mm -hmm. or term, because I don't know what it means, but just like, just strengthening the local tissue. Do you think it's more of a inhibition thing then? Uh, Or the inhibition?
1: So you're you're asking what, what is the beginner gains help? How does that, the, like, no, uh,
0: well, after the beginner gains. So, so after the beginner gains, like, so we're going to keep strength training someone, probably no matter who they are, it's just how much you do and how you do it. But do you think, I need to get better at my, making my questions clear, don't I? But, um, like h- how much for a narrower person or for someone like that, that you, someone might describe as tendon driven is okay. I'm going to keep strength training them to make sure the nervous system isn't inhibiting me. So I'm, it, it gets used to this amount of force and, and, and stuff like that rather than actual, like making the tissues locally stronger.
1: Yeah. So I, I gotcha. Um, Dan John, when he was on my show, said something interesting and it was like something to the tune of, does anyone know exactly why strength training makes someone better, why they throw farther? And I think we can throw a lot of things like, and I can throw a lot of, you know, things I think happen out there, but I I don't know if I could tell you exactly why, just from the perspective of, okay, like, let's say I'm a neuro ISA, I'm elastic, I'm bouncy. And there's a lot of people like me who barely lift who do incredible athletic things. Mm -hmm. And so you say, well, why do you need to strength train? I would say, just if I had to rattle off a few things from the top of my head, I would say, yes, there is like in moving slower, you have a beneficial effect for the tendons, the muscle tendons, those like a health related effect. And I think that's cool. Um, You do have, if you don't compress at all, strength training does teach you to compress a little bit more. And I think there is a level of compression that it's nice to have, but obviously we don't want to get excessive. We don't want to get stuck in it. We don't want to change the shape of our body in a negative way. Uh, but it's also, it's a high, it is a, a different way of creating a high neurological output. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if I'm a jumper and all I do is just these quick, you know, explosive, or I could do like, you know, I could drop off a four foot box and create a high neurological output. It's just a it's just a different way of doing it in a way that's probably more joint friendly. I will say as I've gotten a little bit older as an athlete and my nervous system can't handle the high intensity that I was pounding out in my early twenties. I mean, when I was jumping my best as a high jumper, I was pretty regularly, not often, but like I hit my best, my best track meet ever at 21 was three days after a really heavy two thirds back squat for a triple. Like and that just potentiated my nervous system. It just fired up. It fired up my nervous system. It's not like it created any other likely adaptations that were anything outside of that. Mm-hmm. So there was that, uh, level to it. But now as I've, as I've gotten a little older and my, my general disposition for narrows is, actually to leave the strength training a little bit more higher reps. It's a little more general. Um, it's usually designed in a way that minimizes compression, like the compressive ability of the upper body to lift. So I will Likely give like a safety bar, like if we can do a yeah. safety bar squat, we'll do that because then the arms are down. You can't lift the weight by compressing harder. I mean a little bit, but like mm-hmm. the upper body factor is less of a, a a thing that's helping you lift the weight. So, mm-hmm. and then I'll leave the neural outputs to a little bit more of the the stuff and that and the sprints and that kind of thing for a mm-hmm. neural. And then you know you could play around with feeding in some of those lower rep potentiations. But I look at the athlete I was in high school. And I was a good athlete. In high, I mean, if you want to look at pure function, pure elasticity, I wish I could dig up an old dunk video that I had in a dunk contest when I was 18. I I remember it's on my friend's old like VHS. It's on a VHS somewhere. So this is this is literally 20 years ago. But I just remember watching how I got up off the ground, and it was like as I was running up to the hoop, it looked like my heels barely hit the ground. And again, I know the heels are important, but just for the sake of this specific function, if I would have wanted to play defense, I could be flat-footed, mm-hmm. so I could do that. Um, however, it was like my heels would barely touch, and then I would just explode off my forefoot and just just. I kept going up. I was like, "Man, this is crazy." And in that time of my life, it was not a lot of. It was bare, It was like sets of ten step ups and occasional squats, but not a lot. And it was just a lot of basketball mm-hmm. and a lot of like plyometric and a lot of sprinting. And I ran hurdles and track and all that stuff. So. Um, you know, I did just fine then without it, you know? So it's just like, yeah. I feel like it's it's a narrow, it's a tool you can use every now and then just don't get carried away with it for yeah. the heavier stuff.
0: Yeah. Is there anything, um, if, you're, if you're getting someone into plyometrics or someone back into plyometrics, like POGOs or anything like that, question I want to ask you is a sp- more specific question now is, um, what's your thoughts on the people who are asking people to like pull their toes up in the air, dorsiflex before they hit the floor? versus not do
1: that. I'm interested in your thoughts on that. I think I might know your answer but I'm interested. Yeah, yeah, I got some I got some thoughts. Um so I just think we, like we, as coaches we want to feel like we're doing something. Like as Kibway Johnson who is an elite level hammer thrower recently on my podcast talked about like the coach will so often feel they need to insert themselves in the process that should be the athletes. And we need to be very mindful of this and going back to even the one in 10 feedback. And it's like, we need to create the structure and let the athlete just figure as much out as they can. And so I just think that, well, first off, I'll say this, the ability to do a pogo and have your toes up and come down is important. Like you, sh- a good athlete, in my opinion, should be able to do that. And I think that is why the coaches will coach that. It's the same thing with anything else I think we see in an athletic movement in running like a good sprinter can choose to run with their knees higher if they want to probably. But that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that's the fastest way for them. In Mm -hmm. fact, it's probably a much lower shade of knee lift than what they're ultimately capable of. So we look at the fact that these good athletes are capable of these things and then we just make that part of the the coaching process. Everyone gets coached up this way. The problem is is when we do that, I just think there's almost too many co-contractions. We're making it more mechanical. Mm -hmm. So my ideal is if... If you, let's say, if I want you to get there, what I'd rather have you do first, that's that's a constraint where you're not over-coaching, overdoing it, is can you just do like pogo hops forward, like um rudiment hops, like Dan path? I think is a very, like that goes back to at least him and probably other individuals, but can you just do pogos forward and use your whole foot? Yeah. That's it. Because so you're, that.
0: roll, you're rolling through the full foot.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because that constraint in and of itself forces you to at least get your toes up, meeting the challenge, the same way you organize to dunk it. And yeah. I, I shouldn't have to tell you, do this. That's it. Like I'm sitting here telling you everything to do. Like what kind of ownership is that? Yeah. And so that's my starting point. I, and I find actually athletes who are, have a hard time with that. They don't have a prayer of doing that, like the, the toes up pogo. And mm-hmm. I think people get carried away too, with like this, like, oh, well, it's better for storing energy, and then you're going to release it, like the toes up, saying, oh, well, you're going to really store that energy, and then you're going to release it on the ground. Well, how the hell did anyone ever figure out how to run fast without mm-hmm. that being coached? To, the, no, the body will figure it out. Like, mm-hmm. the body is smart. It will figure it out. How did Bob Hayes run 9.9 in 19, in the 100 in 1968 or whatever? on a cinder track in lane 1 that someone tore up in the steeplechase without being coached to you know lift his toe up for like mm-hmm. <laughs> i just think it's so funny um i mean granted these are skills athletes can do who are good but i want athletes just to learn based off their own learning style and just the constraints before i would i would yeah like have them into doing that hopefully yeah. they can do it on their own
0: yeah i really like the rolling through the full foot stuff uh early on in the plyometrics i really really like that um the toes up stuff I I've found benefit in coaching that specifically sometimes with athletes who have Achilles issues and I'm trying to progress them back into plyometric work and a normal pogo seems to be just flaring them up and I like getting them to pull their toes up and, and like almost think about dorsiflexing before they hit the floor seems to help but I wonder if that's because it kind of puts them in that stretch position already and so they're not stretching as much when their foot hits the floor and so it's actually just taking away it's, a, it's almost like a regression of that for them because they are when you go and run like contrary to proper belief like you're going to plantar flex before you hit the floor it's going to happen it happens in every single good athlete you've ever seen doing anything athletic it's it they're not dorsiflexed. but the floor like effectively is going to dorsiflex the foot them, isn't it or at least that's what i see happening yeah. so so there So that yeah i was just i was just interested in your your take on all of that stuff um because plyometric stuff it's an, it's an, it's an interesting one. It's a hard one. There's a lot of like very good coaches out there talking about that, like making sure the toes are up dorsiflex before the foot hits the floor. And, um, I think it can be useful, but I try, I try my best not to, that was a selfish
1: question. I'm one, I've been wondering very much on, on, on your thoughts on that. I oh, yeah. I got actually, I have a couple of those. So I will say, and I talk about this in elastic essentials is, um, in context of the whole foot hitting the ground, I do like uh, just having people, uh, experience the constraint of simply, uh, lifting the toes. So not dorsiflexing the foot intentionally, but you're just lifting the toes off the ground. So you're just not letting the the tips of the toes touch the ground. And the way I feel like that constraint changes things is because it just allows athletes to experience only the arches of their foot and maybe their big toe too. Yeah. Only the big toe, the big toe too, I guess is probably touching, but like it really puts them into the midfoot. So now what's my midfoot doing and I find even as well I had this experience I was um, working with a client uh, he was just trying to jump higher we were out in a park somewhere and I was I had a lot so many of my ideas come in the middle of a training session I'm like oh like let's try this and so it was it was actually go jump and to the hoop but you have to like lift your toes up when you do it and I tried it myself I was wearing minimal shoes and and I would ch- anyone who's listening to this just try it next time if you're doing like a box jump or running a jumper at all just try doing a jump, lifting just your toes off the ground and just notice how it changes it. And for me, it just, it helps you to get off the ground way faster because sometimes uh, the toes can actually be on the ground too long. Like they're just kind of get mushed. And especially if they're they're, they're kind of like more flaccid, like they're not like have that like gentle hook to them, not gripping, but like a gentle hook. Mm -hmm. Like they can almost mash on the ground too long and you lose all this tensegrity in the foot. And so just... Mm -hmm some just experiencing what it's like to move with the toes off the ground can help you to feel what it's like to be really tied in directly to, I feel like the elastic system, and elastic output. So that yeah. kind of probably does sound, maybe it sounds a little bit like I'm contradicting myself, like, uh, but the reason I wouldn't coach full dorsiflexion in the air in context of running is, is because, and like you said, I do think for some people, it could elicit something that could help them, but I wouldn't want to make a habit of it because um, dorsiflexion through running. So if I'm running and I'm, I'm, and I'm cognitively thinking dorsiflex that actually prevents, it actually causes me to put on the brakes a little bit in mid stride. It actually is a little bit of a break. Um, and so, you, so often if you watch elite sprinters run and especially ones who haven't been over coached into it as the swing leg foot is passing right by the stance leg knee, that foot will usually be in a level of plantar flexion. It usually, it's only going to be dorsiflex if they were coached into it. Yeah. And as Adarian Barr talks about, um, that plantar flexion actually fits with the falling action of running. Whereas dorsiflexing intentionally is kind of like this very vertical, rigid, like I'm trying to fight the ground, you know, like that kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. So yes, I think it can offer a key to maybe some greater stiffness, mm-hmm. but it also, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. Yeah. In the grand scheme of things, if you're always coaching people to run that way. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, I hope that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. Cause I think I see that, you know, when you're training a little bit of pronation with someone or something like that, and I actually see some people contract tibialis anterior so hard to pull their knee forward on top of the foot and they're never going to pronate the foot in that instance, because if the top, like if the knee needs to come forward, that means uh, hopefully I won't get too complex for people, but the top of the tibia needs to like fall and drop forward. Which means the bottom of the tibia almost needs to move backwards relative to that. But if the if the front of the ankle is tensed really hard, then it's actually trying to pull the distal end of the shin forward as well. So now the knee isn't actually dropping, everything is just being pulled forward. So um that's just uh something that I think about quite a bit. So I think that 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 like overly tensing or trying to dorsiflex can be an issue, but it's interesting that you say about pulling the toes up, but not thinking about dorsiflexing because like one of my big things in rehab is making sure people have variability through the feet. Like they can get on their heel, they can get on their midfoot, they can get on their forefoot, but getting them on their midfoot like really is a a big key to that. But the journey to the midfoot is important. So making sure the heel can move so they can get into the midfoot. But I think that the toes, pulling the toes up for some plyometrics, rather than thinking about dorsiflexion all it's doing is taking them away from the forefoot and actually giving them giving them their midfoot and tensioning the arches a little bit more and making them use it in that way so um that's actually helped me clear that up a lot more the 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 toes up versus the dorsiflexion completely yeah that that's that's very helpful so thank you for that
1: Ah, you're welcome. I'll call it midfoot hops. I mean, I'm sure the idea, like part of the reason the idea hit me, I'm sure, is some things that you've been said in the past. So I have to credit you for that. But I, yeah, when I jump like that, it's just it's it's so different in a great way. And so yeah, again, it you don't want to, I don't want to like speak coach and high jump and be like, all right, now remember to keep your toes. Like yeah, mm-hmm. you just want to give athletes the experience and then let them do with it what mm-hmm. they what they need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, I think that, it's, I think
0: it's more useful or not more useful, but more applicable actually in the rehab setting, probably where you do have a bit more time one-on-one and you are bringing their awareness of certain things. Um, and like, that's, yeah, that's, that's interesting. That's definitely something that I will, um, I'll have to think more about. Um, okay. I want to be respectful for of your time. I have a few questions about the podcast that I want to ask. Sure. Um, so firstly, Joel, what, like when you hang up from a guest, finish the podcast, you've done it, you've done the interview. What makes you excited to say I cannot wait for that episode to be released? Like what does what do you think is a successful or a really good interview?
1: That's a good question. So from a I guess a selfish point of view, it's I that I learned something that I'm really excited to put into practice either with the next client I'm working with, writing a program, my own training. A lot of times, whatever I'm gonna do in my next training session. And although that sounds selfish, it's like I, what comes out, gets outputted into client sessions always starts with something I'm messing around with. Mm-hmm. And so that's, yeah, that's probably just it. It's something that's, like, man, I'm so excited about this piece. Like I'm excited to, I am really thrilled that I learned that. And so hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm excited that other people will too. Yeah. Uh, I would say that's the
0: Do you think that transfers over where is there times when I'm sure there is, but is there times when you finish a podcast and you're like super excited and then that podcast just doesn't do well at all?
1: <laughs> yeah, there have been those. And those actually are times I'm not like, I don't know, like I'm trying to think of some specific examples. I think the biggest ones there are the ones that are more, um, very right brain, like things that go into like, Mental training, like a lot of these things that aren't as quantifiable. And therefore, I don't know why, just a lot of people don't. Maybe this aren't ready to be there quite yet. Mm-hmm. And I think that pays. There is something where a lot of people will say, oh, it's 80% is mental. All the sport is all mental. But then no one does anything about it. I think yeah. the same reason that no one does is the same reason those podcasts don't get listened to as much as I would like, but I still will continue to put them out because I find them highly intriguing. But kind of stuff along those lines, um, that, that, that's in more in that right brain, more yin, um, mm-hmm. atmosphere of things Then tends to sometimes not be, uh, although lately I feel like some of those have been, so that makes me happy. <laughs>
0: yeah. Cause yeah. the ones, the ones that like, I suppose the ones that people are super interested in listening to are probably the things that they're already good at and they probably like agree with the person that's talking and all of these things they've probably heard them talking before and then maybe it's the other ones they actually need to listen to and and will pick up more from so that's definitely something I will uh, I will think about when you when you think back of your to your first few episodes or whatever if you were to listen back like what what um what
1: mistakes did you make as an interviewer? Um, I think just, I, I don't think there's anything I could have fixed in, in the sense, like I, I had to evolve and, but I think the big mistakes are or just the thing that's evolved is just being just nervousness. Like, and it's still, I still struggle with it in the sense of like it being very mechanical, being afraid to just, um, be fully authentic. And I, I still struggle with that. And even when I'm putting together the pre-roll for the show, like people don't, Know this about me, but I'll agonize over: Did this sound right? Did I introduce the guest and not kiss their ass too much, but also show that it was interesting? You know, like Mm. I, I really. uh, So, so still, just I look at like you know someone like Joe Rogan who just doesn't, you know, just throws it out there, or people who just throw it out there—they're fully themselves, and that's something I'm still working hard on. And I feel like that—that is directly linked, I think, to eventually the success of. Ultimate success of my podcast, and I think the world just needs that. We're at a time where the world needs just this direct authentic- authenticity. I, I was just not to derail. I was just finishing a book of uh, about Winston Churchill uh, when he was, um, at the, he when he was meeting with Franklin Franklin Delano Roosevelt right after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. So this was like massive. The Americans were going to join the war, and like <laughs> Roosevelt was going through like the hotel like to go meet with Churchill and. Opens, knocks on the door and like Churchill's in his room, like butt naked, like with a cigar or something. And he's like, it's something he had a security guy with him, And the security guy or church was like, well, this is how I am. Like, let's, this is how I am. I have nothing to hide. Like, let's talk. And I just, this, this rotund, you know, guy, who, and I just, that, that strikes me because it's like, this is who I am. I have nothing to hide. Let's talk. And I just, I'm trying to embody that more. And that's, that's something that from day one, I think has been growing.
0: Yeah, man. I love that. I love that. And I, I think, because whenever I go on a podcast as a guest, I don't want to get uh, the questions beforehand. Some people send questions, some people send like a vague kind of thing where here's the topics I'd like to discuss. Either way, I don't really like to read them because I feel like I'm starting to rehearse my answers in my head then. And it just doesn't feel as authentic. So, I'm. but maybe, but, but that's just me. Now, if I invite a guest on and some guests, I didn't send you any questions. Maybe I should have, but like some guests, I I knew we'd be fine because we could just have a chat, but like some guests will probably want a list of questions and very specific topics. And do you think that takes away from an an interview or you just think that's personal, personal preference?
1: It's, it's definitely personal. Like I look at, um, the Christian Thibodeau like neurotyping stuff, like the type threes, the people who are very like, like the endurance runner, the person who's hyper organized, they want the questions ahead a lot of times. And they want to know what some of them will even like write out what they think they're going to answer for it, because if nothing else, sometimes more for themselves. Uh, and then some people like, don't tell them, I don't want to know. Like like Christian Thibodeau himself doesn't even look at the questions. If I send them, I don't think, cause he just wants to go off the cuff. Like he wants it to be super organic. So I just think there's, there's just different people out there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, how long is, how long is an ideal
1: podcast time-wise? Nah, well, for me editing it uh, or, or paying someone else to under an hour. Um, but I don't know. I, I mean, I think that sometimes to really explore a topic in its, like in, in its due is anywhere from 60 to 90 minutes beyond 90 minutes. It can just get a little, you know, I mean, some topics you can, um, yeah, yeah, I like 60 to 90 though, somewhere in there. Cool. How do you vet your guests? Uh, like how do you decide who you're getting on? Um, that's a good question. You know, I was really in, when I first started this whole thing, it's easy. It's like, who's all the all-stars in the industry. I'm going to talk to all of them, all the people I look up to all the, you know, and then like you said, it's been 190 some unique guests and I don't have people like scouting for me. It's it's just me looking for different guests. And so, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times at this point it's, it is repeat guests, but it's also, it's almost like you're building a giant tree in the sense of, okay, here's this school of thought. Here's all these people that were involved in that school of thought. Mm-hmm. Here's this school of thought. And you get recommendations from different guests on who they would like on. Um, but a lot of it is just, I think it's just me and I find... I'm reading, I'm learning, and I see someone intriguing. And then that's where the, I think the older that when I started Joel would have had more hesitancy there. Like I would have been like, I'm just going to stick with these safe guests in the sense of everyone knows them and they're, you know, up to, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to, this person's really interesting. I'm just going to interview them. Let's just see what happens, you know? And you learn so much from that. It's like, you're just slowly painting the picture, this huge picture. And so it's just poking around and just not being, you know, just, just being, um, Having that thing to go after the interview and just mm-hmm. see what happens.
0: Yeah. And my thing, I the thing I'm kind of struggling with when I think about po- like starting this podcast is if so, if if I listen to your podcast, let's say, and I trust you as a host and as a coach and all of these things, then I'm kind of trusting you to bring on a, a guest that kind of, at least they know what they're talking about with regards to what they're talking about, right? So my my trust of you has been extended onto that guest. So then if you're, if you, like sometimes I might listen to your podcast and a guest is saying something and I'm thinking in my head, I don't know if Joel agrees with what this person is saying based on what I know about Joel. So like at what stage then do you, like how one, how do you stay a little bit more neutral or unbiased and two, do you sh- should do you think you should stay unbiased or, ne- or neutral, or do you sh- do you think you should maybe argue a point with someone or I- in a respectful way, or how do you like how do you navigate that if you think if you
1: think someone is just
0: saying something that's really just not right, or well, I suppose there is no right or wrong, but yeah, how do you how do you navigate that side of things?
1: Yeah, exploring the context. Actually, that's something I think I've grown into. I should mention that as i i did get some um that i at least heard of never directly but I'd heard of some criticism that and i've seen this sometimes in other podcast hosts occasionally where they'll just the guest will say something that's either a really long and complex and maybe the host didn't catch it all which that happens to me sometimes uh, i try not i these actually these podcasts take so much mental energy out of me in the sense of I am by nature a little bit ADHD, and I have to. I really hyper focus for these, and then after, like, I can't even type for a few minutes. Like, my brain is just out of juice, and so I've really tried to be hard, my, um, to try hard to really keep that focus. It's so good for me. Like, this is so good for me. But also, when a guest says something that might be conflicting and in the beginning, I would just say, "Awesome! Like, that's cool! Like, and be hyper agreeable." And then as mm-hmm. I've gone on, I realized, no, it's it's my responsibility too. If I hear something that I don't agree with to at the very least, and this is my, and it has to fit with who you are and your personality. My personality is to be a little more neutral. Like I'm a, I'm a Libra, if you're into that kind of thing. So I um, I tried to say, like, for example, a good, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying this, but I had Michael Zouifel on, an awesome coach from Iowa a little while ago. and It was one of the best podcasts, in my opinion, that I've had. Um, it was like 275. And at the end, he said something that I don't know if I, I don't think I entirely agree with it, but it was the idea that, it doesn't matter in doing conditioning drills it doesn't matter if an athlete touches a line or not all that matters is what happens in the game and i think there's definitely some i agree that only it is true it really matters is what happens in the game but there is other i believe there's other possible context to not touching a line and conditioning that fit with the team and the social structure mm-hmm. and i just i think i just said um you know playing devil's advocate you know like i, I speak of it more from a place of neutrality asking questions and I, i'm not aggressive with it but i've definitely learned to uh, hey, let's explore this more. Like uh, devil's advocate, what about this? You know, what about that? And so that I think I've grown in that sense, yeah. and and that's what people want. Like we we live in a day and age where like we don't just want what's fed to us. We want to explore. We want people who are authentic, who are able yeah. to. Um, and I think that was also my insecurity and in being being afraid to ask people questions. And maybe the fact that the podcast is more popular, I feel like I have more. Um, I don't know. I have I have more ability to do that now. Yeah. But I wish I I wish I would have. A long time ago, um yeah. anyways, that's that's, that's my to...
0: that's my that's my biggest not fear like but that's my biggest thing I've been thinking about like because I obviously have different ideas I suppose to a lot of people in the industry with regards to movement and stuff like that, and I respect everyone's ideas and I don't think there's a right or wrong, but I don't want to fall into the trap of being just agreeable with someone just because I'm on the podcast whereas Because I think there is like, there's obviously a lot of coaches listening to your podcast and probably a lot of young coaches and stuff like that. And a lot of people who like critical thinking is a problem in the industry where people just, someone says something and everyone else just agrees with it for, especially if they have a big name or whatever. So I think you have a responsibility or I have a responsibility to to not just agree with something that I don't agree with because. That might make me feel good at the time, and like it keeps the podcast maybe flowing and make my guests feel good. But maybe a lot of people are taking an idea that is is not is not the best idea. Then, so that's something that I'm gonna I'll probably mess up a lot over the next while, but um, I'm gonna have to work on it.
1: Yeah, I think it's all you know. If we ever had to be a news anchor someday or whatever, or interviewer on a major network, you know, how would that person? How would that person go about it? Yeah, it's it's definitely something. I'm sure you'll it'll be very natural to you the more you do, for sure. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. Um, What was I going to ask you? What? How do I get some big names on? Obviously, I know you, so you can come on. Um, (laughs) You 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 owe me you owe me a podcast. So
1: I I owe you
0: like five podcasts, (laughs) and I have a few other people that owe me a podcast. But um, like, is there is it just a matter of of being consistent with the podcasts, and then as the listeners go up then people are willing to come on or is there a secret little is there a secret email you'll send them if you if you don't know them and you want to get them on
1: yeah so actually this would be um i've always had good luck i mean i find people love to speak their mind and talk and so often you can get way bigger of a name than you ever thought you could just i think just matter of principle i have had guests like the one actually guest that i i felt like i really had to work to get. And this was a majorly disappointing one in the sense of you asked me ones that didn't do as well that I thought were freaking amazing. This show was amazing, and it didn't do real well because I think it wasn't like speed and heavy weightlifting complexes and stuff. But Stephen Kotler, like the a world expert in flow states. and and again, it maybe it's more a little bit of the right brain. It's not like something you can take and apply to your athlete in x, y, z, one, two, three formats um anyways there was an awesome show with steven brilliant guy and um but i had to i think i sent them an email and like i i may have sent them a couple and it took like six months and finally someone and i don't even know if it's related said hey would you like him to be on your show and i was like oh like i was like celebrating you know i so excited and so i think there's just a level of persistence too you know and mm-hmm. if you really want to have a guest on i think eventually it'll it'll happen so mm-hmm. yeah I, I i don't think anything the way i like to think of it is i don't At some point, I don't think any guest is out of reach if you want them to be on your show uh, enough. So
0: I'm going to listen to that podcast. I haven't listened to it. Um, Yeah, check it out. And I don't want to, like for me, I want to be... This podcast for me is going to be about two things. One is like, one is selfish for me, where I want to connect to people and talk with people and hear ideas and stuff like that. And two is I do have a feeling that I want to like give back to like in a weird way, like give back to the industry or help other coaches connect with people that I think have good ideas and listen to people who I think have good ideas. And I think my Instagram like is kind of selfish in a lot of ways where I do an Instagram, like I do Instagram posts to sell copies of my products and to promote myself and stuff like that. And like that, that's it. Like I'm not, I'm trying to give out good information and I'm trying to help people, but like it is a selfish pursuit. Ultimately, I would probably delete my Instagram if I wasn't selling anything. Um, I would probably delete it in the morning if I won the lottery or something <laughs> like that. So, so like that's a selfish pursuit. But I don't want the podcast to be that. I want to bring and talk, uh, like give give people the chance to to spread their uh, good ideas. I think so. So, um, yeah, and it doesn't necessarily have to just be talking about gym stuff or anything like that. I want to be able to interview different people from different fields, because obviously if you're in any way open-minded, you can learn something about coaching from anyone or any book or a business book or anything like some, there's always lessons to learn from people who have developed a, a certain amount of excellence in any field, I think so um yeah i'm going to try and try and delve into that even if even if some of the episodes aren't as popular let's say i'm going to try and make sure i have a little spread of topics i think
1: yeah i'm Um, great
0: we'll see man um what last last maybe last question what's who's been your best guest or like your maybe your best three guests i will give you
1: Oh, David Gray. Apart from uh, me, of course. <laughs> gosh, that's, uh, I don't know, it's like you're asking me, it's like, uh, you know, I have two kids. It's like you're say, you're asking me to say, what's my favorite kid, you know? So I, yeah. I don't know that I can give you an answer there. I, I'll, I'll ask a better, I'll ask a better question. So this might be, this might be easier. Out of all your guests, let's say you're
0: stranded on a, a, a uh-huh. desert island and you have one week you're going to be stranded for and you can bring three guests that you can know, like, okay, I can learn
1: so much from these three people for this for the week who would they be all right so um actually i'm gonna go with four sorry i just i, I i'm kind of thinking no, about only five. three
0: <laughs> no you can have four you can have five if you want okay
1: yeah I, i'm gonna go with four just because I, I so just i don't know yeah four might sprout the learning too much so okay well here's uh so i'll go with different uh spectrums of the polarity so one um Actually, I can do three. I can do three. Uh, So one would be a Darian Barr. I haven't seen him in a while. So I'd love to keep learning from him. You know, Mm -hmm. there's always so much like stuff, you know, so many ideas that would happen with there. Uh, Another be Logan Christopher, uh, who's like herbalist, mentalist, like naturalist, like all these different abilities, Uh, strong, old school, strong man. Like, so there's like the inner mental game. So Darian, you have biomechanics, Logan, you have just like that inner mental game. And then uh, Rafe Kelly, Uh, I actually spent time with him in Washington, but like uh, parkour and human movement and more like the, the meaning of movement. So the, the meaning of why we do these things. So there you have a little bit of that element. So I have my, my three, um, you know, maybe I'd like to have some more like strength stuff in there. I was thinking of having a strength guest in that four, but I don't have barbells likely or dumbbells or so that doesn't matter there anyways. So uh, I'll yeah. take those. Three. That'd be a fun time. Yeah, man. They sound
0: like, um, that does sound like a fun time definitely uh joel it's been a pleasure you're a star thank you so much for for coming on um hopefully hopefully one of one of many podcasts that we can do and um hopefully it doesn't crash and burn along the way hopefully i'll be figuring out how to actually upload this episode and all these those other things along the way that people
1: don't see so um yeah thanks very much man you're a star you're you're welcome It was an honor to be on and an honor to be guest number one i I can't thank you enough you're welcome man